uh, as I was climbing those rungs and trying to be a good dad and all that stuff, you know, and I kept praying and good things kept happening. I don't want to say that's the reason why, but I, I was absolutely amazed at the way my life was going. And I knew, I mean, I felt I was a talented, bright, driven, uh, and I cared about people who worked for me and with yeah. me, but it had to be some kind of power yeah. beyond uh, who I was and what I was doing. And so that, that bolstered and strengthened those ties as, yeah. as I went through my life. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I am your host, Molly Stillman, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, the companies, and the small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I get to sit down with an incredible entrepreneur, business leader, community activist, speaker, author, or just an incredible person who is trying to make a positive impact, not only with their personal life, but also with their career. My goal is to show you, the listener, that no matter where you are, no matter what you do, you can make an impact. My guest this week is David Pruitt. David is a first-generation college graduate from UNC Greensboro and previously served on the advisory board for their Bryan School of Business. He's a licensed CPA. He started his business career in an entry-level accounting position before eventually advancing to the first CFO, then CEO of Performance Bike. For a time, it was the largest cycling retailer in the United States. David retired from corporate America in 2006 and began writing his memoir, Relative Distance. His early life as an abused child taught him how to overcome obstacles, and his successful career as a senior executive taught him how to lead and communicate effectively. He has this passion and ability to tell his story in a way that not only helps adults, but also young people, people who were abused as children in order to live the lives they want, not the ones forced on them. Relative Distance is a powerful and masculine memoir of resilience and faith. It's an unflinching look at brothers being raised by a violent, abusive father and a detached, mentally ill mother. And it's also an inspiring account of two distinctive life journeys and an examination of the role played by family and society in individual homelessness. David's story is incredibly powerful, and he is an incredible advocate for fighting childhood abuse. I was so incredibly inspired by this conversation, and it is one that I have thought about long after it was over. I loved that I actually got to have David into the studio for recording the episode, and so he was live in person. He lives just uh, right down the road, and I was really encouraged and inspired by his story, and I know that you will too. But before I get to my conversation with David, I want to thank our partner of the show, and that is Mama Suds. If you have been around here a while, you know how much I love Mama Suds. Mama Suds is a mama-owned household cleaning company that is so much more than just amazing soap. <laughs> I've actually had the head mama, Michelle Smith, on the show and I love everything about what Mama Suds stands for, what they do, and their products. Every single product for your kitchen, for your bathroom, your bedroom, cleaning your home, and you know, from hand soap to Castile soap to laundry soap, Mama Suds has something that is not only safe and non-toxic using clean ingredients, it is also effective. Let me tell you, we have used these products in our home for years. I love their stain stick. I love their laundry soap. I love their Castile soap. I love their hand soap. The toilet bombs, it's all. All of it is amazing. And I know you will too. So head on over to mamasuds.com and use the coupon code MOLLY to save 15% off your first order. That's mamasuds.com with use the coupon code MOLLY to save 15% off. Now on to my conversation with David Pruitt. 
Well, this is a really exciting occasion because this doesn't happen as often as I feel like it used to, but I have my guest live in the studio with me today. So David, thank you so much for being here. Awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. I love, I mean, well, pre-pandemic, I interviewed a ton of people in person and then pandemic hit and I was in my closet half the time <laughs> interviewing people. Uh, and so now I really only get to interview people in person if it's somebody that I know that I, you know, I know lives really close. And when I got connected with you, I was like, he lives in Chapel Hill. All right, we got it. We're going to we're going to do this thing in person. So thank you for coming out to the farm. And I know this was probably not the recording studio you probably envisioned you were going to. <laughs> Hey, it's pretty awesome. Brings back some some memories. So it's great. <laughs> well, um, I am really looking forward to this conversation. And um, as soon as I got uh, kind of introduced to you and your work, I mean, I was, uh, you know, familiar with Performance Bike and but then diving a little bit more into your story. And um, you just released your first memoir, which uh, is incredible uh, relative distance um, that is uh, incredibly powerful. And uh, as somebody who is, I am writing a memoir right now. <laughs> so um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm some steps behind you in that. And uh, so I'm, I'm looking to glean a lot, but also just to learn more about your story. So let's get right into it. And I'm going to have you do what all my guests do. And that's give us the David 101. So who you are, what you do, and how you got to where you are today. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me here, yeah. by the way. But um, so I was... Um, Raised in Greensboro, North Carolina. My father was a blue collar factory guy, had two older siblings, uh, brothers, and uh, it was a dysfunctional upbringing, a challenging upbringing. Uh, my mother was mentally ill. She was schizophrenic. Mm. And so she was out of my life by the time I was 10 years old. And uh, my father, he was a hardworking man, responsible guy, roof over the head, food in the stomach, but uh, he was verbally and physically abusive. It was pretty brutal. Mm. And so I had, uh, by the time I was 18, my two older brothers were homeless on the streets of Greensboro. And uh, I was almost homeless. Uh, I played sports. So my father, you know, we had it out. I was looking for help for college. No one in my family had ever gone to college. So I, I, I was working, but I needed some financial assistance. We got in a battle. He kicked me out. And I had some decisions to make. Fortunately, I had some friends who were on the team, uh, and one of their mothers took me in for a little while. Mm. Uh, and then I reconciled with my dad. I went ahead and, and went to school and uh, became a first-generation college graduate at UNC Greensboro. I worked while I went to school. Uh, I needed to. And uh, when I got out, I passed the CPA exam. And uh, then I went down the, the path of uh, corporate America. Uh, I worked 35 years in corporate America. 20 of those years, I was either a CFO or a CEO. And, uh, you know, but all the time that I was going through my career, at the same time, I, one of my brothers got off the streets, which was awesome. Um, I'm, I'm so proud of both, both of my brothers, by the way. But one of them was actually homeless for almost 20 years. Mm. And so while I was working, even when, when I was gaining more responsibility and going into larger leadership roles, I still carried some real self-esteem issues, uh, just some really challenging things, you know, voices in the head, a few sleepless nights, and it always bothered me. At the same time, my brother, who I lost for 27 years, I didn't see him. I, I didn't know what had happened to him. We'd, and, and so he had a lot of struggles, and a lot of those struggles emanated from how we were raised. And so I had this career that was far better than I ever could have imagined. Uh, when I started at Performance, we were maybe 30, 40 million in revenue. 
10 stores and we grew to over 100 stores and 250 million in revenue. And there's some challenges at the end because the founders kept flipping the company and putting debt on the balance sheet. But in any event, just an incredible career. My career ended relatively suddenly because of circumstances in the business, which is captured in my book. But you know, anytime you, you go through a tremendous time of change, there's, a, there's an opportunity to reflect. And I knew how much what had happened to us when we were young impacted me. And then I found my brother when I retired. Mm. And so I went out to Wichita Falls, Texas to reunite. And so, you know, it was a happy reunion, joyful reunion. He married a wonderful woman. He was off the streets. I was so happy uh, for that. But then we got to talking and it was like we were, you know, we had survived a war Mm. together. And so anyway, hearing how it impacted him and then knowing how that experience impacted me, uh, I decided to write about it. And then I got myself educated on the whole issue of child abuse, which motivated me even more. Uh, to write the story that I've written. So you haven't asked me, but I will tell you that uh, it's not a it's not a financial. I'm, I'm looking for nothing financially. I'm donating all the proceeds to prevent uh, child abuse America. And so, you know, it's been a great journey, an educational journey. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's been I really learned a lot. I learned a lot about the publishing industry, about myself. And uh, it's been a great Great experience for me. So that's a long-winded. Uh, no, <laughs> my not story. long-winded at all. It's uh, I think it's a great kind of overview for us. And and you know there are so many reasons that I was really interested to hear your story and to really dive a little bit deeper into it. And you know part of it is because I I'm always encouraged, inspired, challenged, convicted. I mean any of those adjectives by people like you who have a story that could have framed your life in a very, you could have used just about every excuse in the book. (laughs) You could have let any of those circumstances from your childhood hold you back and you didn't. And you, um, but then you're using that pain, you're using um, that story for a purpose and to impact others. And that, I am just somebody who is really encouraged by that. And I also, I mean, part of the reason I have a podcast is because I, I like talking to people. I like interviewing people. It's 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 a, a skill that I have. But I'm also not afraid to ask the questions that I think people want to know. And I would love for you to share from your perspective, what do you think it was about your life in particular that led you down the path of being a first-generation college graduate that in many ways was so different from your brother's experiences. What do you do you know what factors went into that? Is it something you've thought a lot about over the years? How did that how did that really shape you? Well, you can imagine as I was uh rising in my career, the unique yeah. <laughs> feelings that I had knowing the challenges that my siblings had had. You know, I, I will tell you one thing that benefited me uh, significantly was, uh, I was the youngest son. And so I was struggling, but I saw the struggles that my brothers were having. Mm. So I had the benefit of seeing, you know, the challenges that were, were happening because of, you know, the direction that they were going. So that, that was a thing that, that turned out to be a tremendous advantage. And I know in some situations with families that can work the other way where the older sibling, yeah, may have learned responsibility sooner because of helping with kids and stuff. But for me, 
that that was a tremendous advantage. You know, I think uh, faith was yeah. critical. Uh, you know, it's really in my when I write the story, there's faith in self, which is hard to capture when you, your self-esteem is low. Uh, but there's also so faith in God. And yeah. so it's really interesting in our stories as I talk to my brother, even though my father was brutal, uh, we were taught to believe in God. So that stuck with both of us. And I give my father credit for that. But my brother, when he was, you know, had the backpack on his back and sleeping under overpasses and doing the things that he had to do, he always had his Bible, mm-hmm. you know, in his backpack. And for me, faith manifested itself in the form of prayer. Yeah. You know, as I was rising and I would be faced with these situations where, you know, how could I possibly do this given, you know, where I'd come from? Just faith was so sustaining. The prayer was so sustaining and comforting for me. And my brother, when I found him after 27 years, I mean, he was, he's, he's so much more uh, knowledgeable than me. He can quote chapter and verse. And so the faith aspect was, was a big part of it. And, you know, it's really an iterative process. When you're struggling to get to a better place, when you achieve, it, it builds on itself. Yeah. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You've kind of alluded to it a little bit, but what what was going through your mind? Because I'm I'm trying to envision even what I would do in this scenario. And I don't I don't have the answer. So that's maybe that's why I'm asking. Is what that is like to you know, be rising in success and 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 find yourself, you know, quote unquote almost living the American dream, which what is that anymore? I feel like we have redefined what the American dream really looks like. And I almost, that could be an entire podcast we unpack in a different conversation. But you're quote unquote living this, uh, this American dream, you know, first generation college student, you're, you're, you're becoming a CPA, you're rising up in corporate America, you know, CFO, CEO, all that kind of stuff, while simultaneously knowing your siblings are on the street. What is that like? What is that like and what's going through your mind during that time? I have a tremendous drive. I I don't, you know, the drive can come from the negative voices Mm -hmm. that you've heard, right? Right. I mean, it can come from that. You know, fear was part of it. Yeah. Yeah, there was was fear that, uh, and it's really interesting, no matter how much I'd accomplished or what praise that I'd gotten, my, my feet didn't totally feel firm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, and that, yeah. that was symptomatic of what had happened. But, you know, I'd never. So my my oldest brother, who's a wonderful guy and, and I respect immensely, you know, he and I were keeping in touch. I was still trying to take care of my dad, which I was I was happy to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and he he would see the rise. But, I, you know, so my dad had this line he always gave me when I was a kid, which I'm not going to give you now. But that would always stick with me. But I could see in his eyes when that changed about. Mm-hmm you know, where I was going and what I was capable of. So, you know, it was hard. I I lost my one brother who's a big part of my story because, you know, I I see him as the most resilient, Mm. you know, part of the story for me and and for us. But I I really lost him. And so uh, I didn't know where he was or what I lost him from, I guess, 1991 to 2018. So Mm. I, I, I didn't know what had happened. I didn't know where he was. And so, you know, I would pray for him, but, you know, I, I just didn't know. So, by the time I really got into it, I was married. I had, you know, we had children. I had a responsibility. I had to focus on that. Yeah. So that drove me, that responsibility. And, and my father was a very responsible guy. He just had these mood swings that he just couldn't mm. control. But, yeah. you know, so responsibility drove me. 
And, you know, I, I kept up with my older brother and we stayed in touch and I helped him when he needed it and was glad to do that. Yeah. And, uh, but my, my younger, my middle brother, who I was actually cl- very close to growing up, I, I'd lost him. And I was, I wanted to stop the cycle with my kids. Yeah. So I was focused on being a good dad. Yeah. I want to unpack that because I have uh, quite a few friends who, who, and just people in my life who I know who grew up in volatile homes. And, um, and I know that that is now one of your passions is, um, you know, fighting against child abuse. And it's so interesting when I have conversations with people who have grown up in some of these really challenging environments, the way that they then view themselves when they become parents. And I was having a conversation with a friend who grew up in a very volatile environment, has very complicated relationships with her um, parents, with her grandparents. And, you know, she is now a mother and she talked about how she is just so terrified to repeat the sins of her, her parents and grandparents past. And I said, well, one, I said, the fact that you're sitting here having this conversation with me says a lot about you, but that you, you care, number one, like you care and you're, and you're self-aware enough to say, I don't want to repeat what my parents did. Um, and this is not the thing that I often find myself doing where sometimes I, something comes out of my mouth and I go, oh, that was my mom or that was my dad that's coming out of my mouth right now. This is different from that. Um, it's that pattern of toxic behavior that often has to be broken. And, we, and, and I would be curious, you know, because one of the things that I've kind of studied in the last couple of years is, um, and I say studied, I mean, just read a lot about and um, listened to a ton of podcasts because I'm fascinated by it is neuroscience and uh, the way that our brains are actually wired and how our brains create neuropathways of behavior. And I always kind of liken it to I remember I was having a conversation with my kids who are nine and six about this and try and explain to them what neuropathways are. And, the, and my son, who's six, was like, well, I don't, I don't understand what this means. And I was like, all right, here, I'm going to speak your language. And I was like, it's, it's like you're walking in our woods. We've got a lot of woods that we're surrounded by. And I said, you know how there are some areas where there are pretty clear paths. And you've got these clear paths that you've walked on a million times and the leaves are tramped down, the grass is tramped down, you know, there's, uh, there's, you know, cleared from sticks and you can walk very clearly on that path. Well, if you want to, that's, that's the, that's a neuropathway in your brain that exists. And that is patterns of behavior. That's patterns of thought. Um, that is a habits, all those kinds of things are those, those pathways in your brain that are your brain just knows and associates certain behaviors or, uh, you know with events or uh, your your brain naturally reacts to something I said when you want to create a new neuro pathway and create a new way of thinking or a new habit or a new pattern of behavior what you have to do is you have to go walk through the woods through an area that hasn't been walked before and you're going to have to walk over that area a lot of times maybe even take a weed whacker and get some of the weeds up and you're going to have to move the sticks and you're going to have to move the uh, you know uh, objects you're going to have to move the snakes all those things that are in your way to create a new path in the woods and it's going to take work. It's not going to be, you're not going to be able to walk down that path one time and have it be a clear path. But if you want a new walking path in the woods, you're going to have to do it over and over and over again. And I said, that's basically creating a new neural pathway. My six-year-old son was like, got it, like uh, understood it immediately. And so I, I, I say all that and set all this up to that is what 
so many people who have experienced trauma and child abuse is obviously trauma and what trauma can form in all different uh, can come in all different shapes and forms um, is you have to recreate those new neural pathways, because if you've experienced trauma as a child and you've seen behavior that your parents have done, you have to create new neural pathways to behave differently. And so I'd love for you to share what are some of the things that when you became a parent, uh, you did to break those cycles of behavior that you you yourself witnessed and experienced growing up? Well, let me answer that, but let me give you some numbers first. Yes, please. Uh, uh, 30% of children that are abused wind up abusing their children. Mm. And I, at some point in the as we speak, I'd like to talk a little bit about adverse childhood experiences just to kind of talk, to your, talk would, to your audience about yes. that a little bit. But uh, one of the great gifts I got, and this is going to seem very hokey, no, not but, at all. Uh, There's when, nothing hokey on this show. Don't you worry. <laughs> but uh, one of the great things that helped me when I was a kid, so I knew I was never going to put my hands on my kids. Mm. I, I knew it. There was never a doubt. Now, there were going to be boundaries and rules and respond, you know, behaviors that were going to have to be managed. But so when I was a kid, I treasured the Andy Griffith show. We love Andy Griffith in this house. Which is, which is frightening, I'm sure, for many, particularly not from the South, but... Uh, it showed me what the relationship between a father and son ought to look like mm. and, and what a, what a good parent. I mean, discipline has to be there, but there's also give and take and communication and, and care, you yeah. know? And so I saw that whatever my father had in me, I just wasn't born with it in, in me. Right. But so many, so many kids are, I mean, they can't turn that corner. They become adults and they pass it right down. And my brothers rationalized my dad for years that way because his dad was a sharecropper who was pretty rough on my dad growing up. But for me, it was never there. 30% of, of, of kids do it, and it's, it's, it's terrible. But uh, there's a chapter in my book when I made a mistake with my son, uh, the way I had spoken to him, and I knew it. I caught it immediately. And, uh, yeah, I'm smart. I learn. And I catch myself. So, mm-hmm. and plus, I loved my kids so much. It was it was easy. But um, could I speak on adverse childhood experiences? Please, please do. So, in this journey that I'm on, I've learned there's a name for what happened to me. So, the CDC, which we all learned more about during COVID, uh, they did a study many years ago with 17,000 participants, and they identified 10 traumatic events that can happen to an adolescent before the age of 17, that if enough of those events happen, it can dramatically change the quality of the rest of their lives. Hmm. So I'll miss some of them, but I'll give you a few of them. Yeah. Okay, there's five that are personal, individual, and then five to the family. The five that are personal are physical, verbal, and sexual abuse, and then physical and emotional neglect. And then the family-related are uh, domestic violence on the mother, uh, an alcoholic parent, a mentally ill parent, there's a couple of more, but you, you get my drift. So there's 10 of these things that happen. So they followed these 17,000 people over the course of their lives. And they found that uh, when people answered the question of, of these things that happened, 12% of that 17,000 had four, at least four of these things happen to them, okay, mm-hmm. as before they were 17. And what they found is they had a 400% greater chance of depression, a 1,200% greater chance of suicide, a 300% greater chance of contracting hepatitis and a 500% greater chance of having COPD. If a participant had at least six of these events happen to them, on average, their lifespan was 20 years less than the rest of the people in this study. Wow. So the deal is that when this happens to you, 
it's something that you carry for the rest of your life and can change the trajectory of your life. And so, and another thing that I learned in this journey is that if you, so 36% of the people that are in prison, the women were abused in some way, or they had these things happen to them. 14% of the men, you can take that rate, cut it in half and apply it to the adult population in the United States. And if you do that, that means there's 25 to 30 million people that have some element of abuse yeah. in their upbringing. And the deal is they never talk about it. I never talk about it. Before I wrote this book, my kids didn't know. Wow. I, I didn't talk about it. I didn't want to talk about it. And and so it's this, it's it's like this dirty little secret in our society. And you know, I'm sure people have looked at my book, particularly when I put it out among my friends, and thankfully they seem to like it. And but you know, there's some stuff in there that's yeah, you know, it's hard for me to to show to the world. Yeah. But it's worth it to me to do that for obvious reasons, right? Because somebody needs to say something to change this trajectory. And it still happens today. Yeah. Yeah, there's this thing that people believe that, you know, we've all advanced beyond that, but but it's not it's not true. It's not true. It's still happening. Yeah. It, it, and it's so it's a it's a big deal. I've talked a lot. Let me stop for a moment no. and let you ask another question. But I wanted to share that information with your audience because it's it's so important. I mean, there's so many challenges in society. And and this is it almost seems like as I got into it, it's almost it's just kind of swept under the rug and accepted. And mm-hmm. it's so prevalent. And that's and then and the implications on on the trajectory of human life is is just beyond belief. So anyway. Well, and I think that you're speaking to it a really important piece of this, and that is education, and that is awareness around some of those statistics. I mean, I'm somebody who I'm fascinated by data, and uh, I, I mean, I'm, and that is not even how my brain is actually wired. <laughs> I was a, I was a creative writing major in college, so like I'm married to a, a financial advisor who is much better at numbers than I am. But I, I also, I think the logical part of my brain understands stats and numbers and 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 i i'm able to wrap my head around different things um because of that and um and and the reality is is that when you are it's not it's almost like an you don't want to say ignorance is bliss but it's like until you know and you're aware about the realities of a, of a particular issue then it's harder for that thing to change that's just that's that's reality um so as you began to learn some of the statistics around uh, this issue and, and these adverse childhood events and and also you becoming such an advocate for um, preventing child abu- abuse. What were some of the things other than sharing your story, which is obviously a huge piece of this, um, sharing your story that you thought, I have almost a responsibility to do what I what is within my power to affect change to to impact others um so that this we can begin to chip away at this uh you know almost iceberg of a of a subject well i have uh, such a sense of gratitude about my life um and so um so i, I want to try to help in two ways one i really learned a lot about writing when i wrote this and i think i became a better writer as i went along yeah so i think I tell a hard story, but I think an uplifting story. So I want to do handle it two ways. I want to carry the reader on a story, maybe with a book that surprisingly, even though it's a little tough at the beginning, they they may really can't put down. It's a story. I think I'm a good storyteller. So I wanted to tell the tell the story well. Uh, so I wanted to tell the story well and raise awareness. 
And then I just want to take whatever. And it's interesting. I've done a lot of research on where I should, if there's, yeah, I, I've learned the publishing industry. There's, there's few things that are less profitable than the bike industry, but the publishing industry may be one of those things. <laughs> I, I've learned, I mean, it's amazing. A million books come out a year. It's crazy. But uh, anyway, I want to take whatever proceeds. I'm impressed with a couple of organizations, but I, I don't know how far I can take this, right? I, I don't know where I can take it and how much of a difference I can make. I'll make whatever difference that I can make. I'm happy to do that, to have free time. <laughs> I'm a retired guy. So, you know, I, those two ways are my way of at least starting down the journey. It's amazing. I've become more passionate about it the more I've learned about it and just how prevalent it is. You know, there's nothing really worse than seeing a child's potential stolen, mm-hmm. right? I mean, what's worse than that? Right. So anyway. No, I'm, I would love for you to unpack a little bit more about as you began to write this story. Um, and, and I'm saying this and I'm asking this question a little bit selfishly, uh, cause I'm in the midst of this. And this is something that, um, that I am finding as I write my own story. Um, and it's become illuminating as I write <laughs> and I am finding that there's certain pieces of it, of, of my story that, uh, have been much more difficult to write than I imagined um, when I first set out uh, to do this. And there have been many times in the last uh, couple of months where I've been like, I should probably call my publisher and say, I think I'm going to send my advance back because uh, <laughs> this is maybe I'm not cut out for this. So as you started to write your story, um, what was, and, and you can take this either way or both ways, what was maybe easier to write than you thought it would be? What was maybe more difficult to write than you thought it would be? Um, what were you learning about yourself as you write? Kind of feel free to answer any or one of those or all of those questions. Well, you know, the I guess the school of thought would be for the type of story that I had is, you know, it wasn't a cathartic experience. Yeah. Right? Every, everybody yeah. asked me that. And I'm not sure how my wife would answer that question. But, uh, you know, I didn't. I'm like, you know, there's a larger mission. So for me, yeah. it wasn't, you know, look, I'll just be blunt. I, I, I cried a couple of times, you know, yeah. it's an emotional thing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just the way it is. So, uh, but I, you know, the hard scenes weren't as hard to write about as I thought they might be. Uh, the uplifting scenes uh, were, were, were fun to write about, but uh you know, and I, I do want to make sure your listeners understand, you know, there's tough things in my book, but there's a good ending here. Yeah. Right. There's a good ending because I'm, I'm blessed. I have a good ending. Yeah. So, you know, that is there. You know, the, the most educational thing for me, and I, I sometimes I'd love to hear your thoughts on the publishing industry itself to learn about what that's about and, um, you know, how uh, maybe my type of story is viewed within the publishing industry was interesting for me to learn. Uh, you would think. The publishing industry would realize if so many people are writing books about this, it's probably a problem that, yeah, need, that yeah. needs to that we need, all need to think about a little bit. But uh, it's funny, as, as hard as I've driven all my life, this may have been one of the most challenging things I've ever done in terms of getting acceptance. I had a few major positive, and I'm probably rambling. I hope that's no, not no, a no. Problem. This is great. Uh, I had a few really uh, things that lifted me on my journey that made me believe I could do this. It, it, it's so funny. So I had this manuscript, right, and I just had this brain dump and then I really started polishing it. And finally, a couple of years later, I had it. So I sent it off to this thing that I heard was really, I guess, prestigious is the right word. This Aspen Words workshop that they have out in Aspen, Colorado. I sent my manuscript on a lark thinking, well, they'll never look at it. But they actually accepted it. And it's like a three-day workshop. And 
these authors with uh, Aaron Shetterly, who's married to Margot Shetterly, who wrote Hidden Figures. Mm -hmm. And he's written a couple of good books. He's a great guy. Anyway, he accepted me into the nonfiction thing. And so, you know, Molly, it was really interesting. I go in this class. So I, I work to get through college, right? And we're all introducing ourselves on a Zoom call during COVID. And this person was from Harvard and this person was from Yale and this person was from Michigan. And I was from little old UNC Greensboro. And, <laughs> you know, but it was it was really interesting. But he really liked the manuscript and he got behind me and, and kind of really gave me a lift when I needed it. Because I would say him and his influence and then my wife, who usually gives me wisdom that I need mm. to be successful, because I would look at her a few times when I was writing this thing and I would say, you know, what am I doing here? Mm. Is anything going to come of this? I mean, what, what, what is the point? I mean, I'm killing myself trying to get this down on paper. And she looked at me, she said, and I went, she said, well, if 10 people are helped by your story, would it be worth it? And the answer is absolutely yes. Now, my aspirations are larger right. than that. But, uh, you know, I didn't find the struggle to write. It's really, I don't know how you write. But, you know, it was for me, I had worked for 35 years and I used to work like 60 hour weeks and travel all over the place and do all the stuff I had to do to run the company I was in. And it was like a job. Yeah. So, you know, I'd make my wife breakfast and I'd go off to the the quiet place and spend, you know, my eight to five yeah. <laughs> writing until I got it. So I don't, I'd be interested to know how you do it, but that's how I did it. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, uh, <laughs> with two young kids on a farm, it does not, uh, it is, uh, it is right when I can. <laughs> and, uh, and thankfully I have a husband who is incredibly supportive and encouraging and, and, uh, believes in me and this book. And so he has been wonderful. And I, uh, gone on at least one writing retreat. I've got another one coming up this month uh, where I just go away for a few days because the reality is, is here, it's it's much harder. It is just harder. I mean, I'm, I'm getting some writing done, <laughs> if I'm being honest, but I get a whole lot more done when I am not distracted by children or farm animals. <laughs> well, you know, there's a couple of things. I'm, I'm sure that you are an excellent writer and I would love, to, I'm looking forward to seeing the finished product. Well, thanks. <laughs> uh, but you know, one thing that I learned in my publishing journey, and I don't want to dwell off too far off course here, no, yeah. but platform is critical. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I was a heads down raising two kids. Yeah. You know, corporate America. Yeah. That's what I did. You know, that was my job opening stores and you know, doing what all the stuff that I did. I, if my wife hadn't put me on Facebook, I wouldn't have been there, you know? <laughs> so I, I really learned in my journey, even though I had a couple of agents tell me, you know, you've written a really good book now. How many Facebook yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I didn't have any of that stuff. So I, that was a really kind of challenging thing because it made me think, as I thought about the publishing industry, how many good stories are out there are out there that can't get support because yeah. of the platform issue. Yeah. Really interesting. So. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I could go down an entire rabbit <laughs> hole on that. Um, anyway. for sure. No, that's good. Okay. So, you know, this obviously, uh, your story is, is so powerful. And one of the things that I want to unpack just a little bit more, um, because it is something obviously that's really important to me, um, is this faith piece. Um, and, I am encouraged, you know, to hear how you talk about how you give your dad credit for um, telling you about the Lord. Um, but I have to imagine that there was there ever a time where your relationship with God was complicated because of that, because you heard your dad say one thing, but the behavior was the the actions were different. The words didn't necessarily match up with the actions. I don't know. I would. I'm just curious about that. You know, my father and his behavior did not impact 
my faith, the thing that would challenge my faith were the circumstances of my life, mm-hmm. particularly when I was young, right? All the things that happened. Even, you know, I, 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 I wrote about it in one of the chapters of my book where I, I can remember the children's Bible that I had, this great big brown with red letters on top that I yeah. flipped through and just all the pictures of the sea parting and all of that. Yeah. I mean, I remember that time, but who my father was didn't challenge my faith. It was the circumstances of my life, particularly the first 18 years when it just seemed like things were piling on that I couldn't overcome, you know? Yeah. But that was the time that I reached and used my faith yeah, people, when they're in times of stress, they really value the faith more. It's really when you when when things are good and you're not so stressful that you need to be responsible and diligent right. in your faith. But for me, it was the circumstances of my life that were the greater challenge, not necessarily my dad. Yeah. When did your faith become your own? Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, when did it no longer become about what you'd been told, but it, it had become something that you felt new, believed in your heart, mind, body, soul, when it became yours and your relationship with the Lord and not because of outside influences? You know, I think it's like, um, I'm sure all of us at some point in our life are amazed by our life journey, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and particularly, I would say, is I'm, I'm a little further down the road than you, but uh, as you get further down the road and more and more things happen in your life, you get amazed by your journey, right? And so uh, as I was climbing those rungs and trying to be a good dad and all that stuff, you know, and I kept praying and good things kept happening. I don't want to say that's the reason why, but I, I was absolutely amazed at the way my life was going. And I knew, I mean, I felt I was a talented, bright, uh, driven, uh, and I cared about people who worked for me and with yeah. me. But it had to be some kind of power yeah. beyond uh, who I was and what I was doing. And so that that bolstered and strengthened those ties as, yeah. as I went through my life. You said that your faith was really a life marked by prayer. And you've kind of alluded that to that a little bit. Um, if that is an area that somebody listening is struggling with, um, and it's really interesting. Uh, I was just earlier this week, I was listening to, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a sermon, but a, a talk at a, a faith conference by this guy who is very well known in sort of the theological sphere. Like he's very, he does a ton, produces a ton of resources on studying the Bible and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, just somebody who's, he shared how he's always in the text. Like he's very relationship oriented with the text and he loves to study the word, the physical word. And he talked about how, you know, even in in his walk, prayer has been an area of struggle for him, um, which I just thought was really interesting and also very honest. And I just really appreciated that. And this is, and I, and maybe partly again, I asked this question uh, because I'm curious. And also this is an area that I have personally worked on for the last like four and a half years um, is 2018 for me was a really, uh, I don't know what the word is exactly. It was a transformative year for me in a lot of ways. And the beginning of the year, what I thought that year was going to look like was very different than what that year ended up being. But when I had set out at the beginning of that year, I had said, this is going to be the year that I really work on my prayer life. And I, and at the time, I didn't know why. 
later in the year, I learned why. <laughs> but um, so it's been a journey that I've been on over the last four, you know, four and a half years to really to really dig into why, why is that the case? Why am I um, somebody who really wanted to work on, on prayer and, and also and how that how that manifests itself in my life today? And so I'm as you, you know, alluded to the fact that your your faith has been marked by prayer. What has that looked like for you on a in a practical sense? Like, is it something that, you know, again, if somebody's struggling with this, what would you say to them? You know, how to what advice would you give them or just words of wisdom? <laughs> okay. I think uh, and it probably won't be a surprise. Once I understood uh, the concept of legalism, because my whole life, you know, so my when I was a kid, my dad said I wasn't any good, right? So my whole life, I didn't think I was good enough, right? And so it was so hard trying to be a good Christian because I, I just didn't think I could measure up, right? And so, and and it's this legalism thing, sort of this Old Testament perspective, right, about your faith, right? That I had struggled with so much because you know, I, I, but once I realized that it was about God's grace. And not me, right? I mean, you know, I'm going to try to be a good guy, right, and right. do the right thing. Don't don't get me wrong. But once I understood that it was okay for me to make mistakes and try to do better and ask for forgiveness for it and not hold myself so accountable or feel so guilty about it, then I could go to God in prayer, you know, receive His grace and let it go and move on, right? And then also, when once I really realized, you know, it's okay to ask for things that you want in prayer. Doesn't mean you know you're going to get them because God's purposes will yeah. is, is going to drive the narrative and the direction here. Right. But once you're okay with yourself in terms of your own sins and and yeah. the things that you do, and you can ask for forgiveness, accept that forgiveness, you know, ask for the things for yourself and for others uh, that you it's it's okay to ask God for that, you know. And yeah. then, but you know, the thing that can't happen is if something doesn't go the way that you think that it should, your faith needs to be steady. Right. Right. You can never, that can never shake. But uh, for me, getting past legalism, which makes perfect sense given how I was raised, right? Yeah. That not good enough. And I'm, uh, yeah, I'm always screwing up. Uh, once I got past that and got comfortable with his grace and got comfortable asking, and, you know, you don't, let's not be selfish in our ask, yeah, right? Yeah. But anyway, I, I don't know. But that for me, those were just a couple of things that if I, once I got over those hurdles, the prayer was so much more effective for me. Yeah. I also really appreciate how you have a few times referenced, uh, you know, I mean, even just talking about your brothers and the relationship with your brothers and, and the brother that you, you know, had lost connection with for 27 years and the reconciliation and restoration that is possible, um, how powerful that is. And also just forgiveness, both asking for forgiveness, for being forgiving, um, forgiving others for the things that you experienced. Was that as you got older, and I mean, maybe if the, if this is too personal a question, you don't want to answer it by all means. Um, but I'd be curious: Did you ever have a point in which you forgave your father for the the things you experienced, or did you have a conversation with him, or was it more of something that you just had to do within your own heart work? In my book, I I talk a little bit about this. You know, the the formal apology never came. Once I had gotten strong enough and grown enough as a human being, I didn't have to have it to succeed. Yeah, there were there were some um, subtle moments, like uh, my father saw me playing with my kids on the floor and remarked how you know he he wasn't much of a father, right? He didn't, you know, 
that's as close as I was going to get, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right? And but fortunately, by then, through my faith, through some achievement, through some other things, I didn't have to have it. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, I'm not a perfect man, right? So it's easy for me to forgive. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I took care of my father until he died. I yeah. made sure financially. I managed his assets and he wanted to stay in his house and I made sure that happened. You know, as bad as it was with him, yeah, he wasn't, he taught me about hard work. He gave me my work work ethic, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so no, we never had that moment. We got close a few times. We we definitely had some some confrontations, which are in the book. And, uh, yeah, I recreated those as best I could. But, um no, we never, there was never the formal forgiveness. I wish there had been, which is one of the things at the end of my book, I talk about how exactly I got from point A to point B in my life. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I refer to is that, uh, if you want God to forgive you, you know, you, you, you got to forgive. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, 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 I did not have to have that from him. And I probably dwelled off because another <laughs> thought came into my head, but, no, I, I, I never got that. I never needed it. We had our confrontations, but um, yeah, I had bigger responsibilities and bigger things that I was thinking about at that point by the time that ever would have happened. Yeah. And again, my mother was schizophrenic. She was out of my life. Now, she was the one that got me baptized. So let me give her yeah. credit for that. Well, I was going to ask, did you ever reconnect with her? So uh, I don't want to give away totally my, but no, I will. No, no, yeah. no. I want to tell you. I, I want to answer the question. Yeah. So, So when I was in college, uh, I got money from the government because uh, my parents were split up and the government helped me get through school. I mean, I worked, but I got that and I needed that. And so my mother called me and she wanted that money for herself. Mm. And I dropped her. And that was it. Yeah. Because I, I was trying to dig out of this hole. And so I dropped her. And then when I was getting married, I, I felt in terms of due diligence, I'm a former financial guy. So, you know, I'd say that I wanted my wife to meet my mother because I thought she should get the full picture <laughs> yeah. before she decided that she was going to marry me. And so I saw her then and I write about that. That was, I think that's one of the best chapters I wrote in the book actually, but uh, I saw her then. And I, so I, when she tried to take the money for college, I dropped her nine years later, I was going to get married. I found her. I took my wife to meet her. I write about that in the book. And then I saw her one more time before she passed. And, um, so the answer is, I ne- my mother was a good-hearted person, but we never connected. But yeah, the, the biggest connection you can have in life is between a mother and a child, right? And so we never had that. So uh, I found her before she passed, um, and I write about it in the book. You know, I, it was tough. So no, we never reconciled. But my she she had a good heart, and I think uh, my mother before the illness took over, she was on her way to being a nurse. Mm. And, and whatever intellect I have, <laughs> I think she was a big part of that. So, um, yeah, so my kids never met her. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know if I answered the question. No, you did. You did. And I appreciate <laughs> And I just want to say I, I really am grateful for your openness and your um, your honesty. And I know, uh, like, like you said, that when you wrote this book and your wife asked you if this book would help 10 people, then you would have. And I, I believe that that is the case. Um, I believe it's already been the case. And I um, hope and I pray that even just this conversation is a, a small part of that and, and impacts people because that, that it makes a difference. Well, that's why I'm here. So well, I will tell you this, though, I, and you know, the publishing world, what I'm really excited about. So 
Uh, you may have already learned this. There's a million books that get pub a million books that get published a year. Now that's that didn't include the self-published stuff, right? And so Publishers Weekly reviews like nine to ten thousand. Yeah. I got mine reviewed. Yeah. So I was really I was really excited about that. Yeah, and, that's a big uh, deal. It is a big deal. I didn't know it was a big deal, it but is my a very big people, deal. The publisher was telling me that's a big deal because I didn't know to be excited or not. But anyway, I've learned that I should be excited about that. So it's really I love numbers, right? So yeah. it's it's an interesting game. So you get they do like nine thousand books a year, a million books get published. So we know what that math is. It's less yeah. than one percent, right? Yeah. And so okay, let's say they review your book. Then of the ones that they review, uh, only five hundred of those nine or ten thousand actually get the infamous or the fa the famous starred review. Yeah. Now I'm still sour that I didn't get the starred review. <laughs> I believe that I deserved the starred review, but I got a very favorable review and got some yeah. blurbs. That I could use to uh, support my book, but I guess that's the thing I want to tell the you know your listener. I, you know, I have a story to tell, and I worked really hard to tell it well. Yeah, that was my job. Yeah, so uh, you know I hope they'll consider. Yeah, I don't know if I'm supposed to plug my book. Oh, you're absolutely. I, 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 I'm, plug now, it. I'm now plugging it. No, you absolutely <laughs> because should. again I'm not going to do anything with it for myself. Yeah. I, I have other aspirations, but uh, you know I feel obligated. One thing I learned in business is the product has to be good. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that's a big deal because the product's no good. doesn't matter all this thing, these yeah, things that happen yeah. around it. You're, you're not going to go very far. Yeah. So I worked very hard. I felt the obligation to have a good product. Yeah. And I hope I did. I'm not independent in that assessment, clearly. But uh, no, I will. I will say it for you. Uh, I and I have no skin in this game uh, is I believe uh, in your story and I believe in this book and I believe everybody should go buy it. So if you're listening, you. you should go buy it right now. You can just pause this podcast. You can swipe on over to your uh, toggle over to your Amazon or your local indie bookstore, or wherever you want to buy your book. And uh, you need to get it relative distance. Uh, David, uh, this has been just phenomenal. Thank you for being here here. Um, before we go and before we get to the get to know you round, um, we've obviously we've plugged your book. Is there anything else like what's on the horizon for you? Uh, you know, you're in retirement. You've just written this book. I mean, are you just like, what, what, what's next? <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a great question. I don't you know, the question is, how far can I take this? Right. So and I know that. And the other thing is, so I, I'm blessed with time. I never, I didn't have time for 35 years. Somebody told me that that knew me well that I crammed like a 45 year career in 35 years because yeah. I worked that many yeah. hours. For next, I just, you know, I want to. My kids are still, they're men now, but I want to make sure I'm still there for them. And uh, yeah, I'm going to try to take this where I can. I have a website now, which is I never thought I would have a website. <laughs> I, had, I had no desire to have a website, but with this book, I was told I needed a website, and so I now have ones. So I think I'm going to do a little blogging on that, maybe, or yeah. do some, write some articles. I've written some articles and some other things that. Uh, actually, I'm getting pretty close with some media opportunities. People have liked my articles, so maybe I can do something with that. But I think I'm going to do some writing and drop it on the website, and yeah, you know, just kind of push this thing as far as I can go, and yeah be a good husband and a good dad and move on. I love it. I love it. Well, that's what matters at the end of your life is the the way that you stewarded the gifts that you were given and the opportunities that you were given. And I believe you're stewarding them well. Can I tell you one more thing? Please. So I consider my greatest accomplishment in my life, uh, my two kids. Yeah. You know, it's a, uh, there's a concept that I've always had in my mind. It's called generational lift. And so when I remember where I came from and I see where they're at, that's great. Yeah. That's the best thing. Yeah. So. Well, that as a mom to young children uh, who are not grown adults yet or not a grown man or woman yet, 
Um, that's an encouragement to me because that is, I mean, that's something that my husband and I are obviously we care very much about is raising our children to not necessarily be the most academically successful or athletically successful, but just knowing uh, the value of hard work, the knowing the value of, you know, having their faith as a foundation of their life. And um, to, you know, I, I say this all the time is that if I've raised two kids who are the, you know, great academically and great athletically and, you know, have all the quote unquote, like accolades and things like that, but they're jerks at the age of 25, then I don't know if I've done my job. So <laughs> my, my goal is to not raise a couple of jerks. <laughs> so, <laughs> Good human beings. Good yeah. human beings. Yeah. All right. Well, now is the portion of the show where we ask just a couple of fun get to know you questions. Sure. So David, are you ready for the get to know you round? Sure. All right. Question number one, uh, of all of your pet peeves, do you have any strange ones? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm a pretty laid back. I was going to say, you seem pretty laid back. I'm, I'm driven, but I'm at the same time, I'm laid back. Yeah, I'm a, my father was a neat freak kind of person, and I'm probably a little little bit of that. I mean, I like <laughs> to have things just so. Yeah. That's my preference. <laughs> I, I've learned flexibility in that over the years, but uh uh, be, that probably say that kind of sticks out. I, I, I don't know. That'd be a great question to ask my wife. Actually, <laughs> yeah, like ask her for you. <laughs> um, I love it. I love it. Okay, uh, we obviously you pour your ha- your heart out on the pages of this book, and we've had a great conversation. Is there something about your life, or just something that you're interested in, or or a hobby, or whatever that I would just never guess about you? I wish I had these questions in advance. <laughs> Well, see, I like to to throw them on you because then you don't then you can't you can't plan too much in advance. <laughs> well, this probably won't be a surprise, but uh, uh, physical fitness is a big part of my life. I like to. Uh, I think I have some anxiety and stuff that that probably came from my youth, and I find that uh, maximum pushing myself, exerting myself, yeah, really pulls that off of me. So that's a big part of my life. That that may not be surprising, but that's part of who I am. No, I sure. like it. I like it. I mean, you were the CEO of Performance Bike. Do you are you a runner, hiker, biker, all of the above? Molly, it's really interesting. When I worked for a bike company, I was so busy working for that bike company and raising my kids, I didn't get on a bike nearly <laughs> as much as I wanted to. Yeah. But since I've retired, yeah. I live on an island part-time. And so I ride the heck out of that bike now, and I really, really enjoy it. So. Yeah. Well, you said that you, you, uh, I guess you said this before we were recording, but you said you go down to um, Holden Beach a lot. Well, we, uh, we love Oak Island, so right sure. next door. So sure. we, we well, love it there. It's beautiful. Absolutely. Such a, a hidden gem, I feel like, of our of our state. And it's so funny because my my in-laws have a um, like a little house towards the point um, on Oak Island, which is right by Holden Beach. And it's so funny how sometimes we'll be at the house and I'll be like looking for a restaurant or something and it'll actually pull up a Holden Beach restaurant as the closest restaurant because mileage wise and as the clo- uh, crow flies, it's close, but it would actually take like 40 minutes to get there because there's not a bridge that connects Holden and Oak Island. So you have to drive like out and around right. in order to get there. But yes, it's, it's I'm familiar very, with that drive. Yeah, it's very funny how sometimes you can like, it's like, I can see the restaurant. It's right there. If you had a boat, I guess you could get there quicker. If you, But <laughs> uh, yeah, no, anyway, so, okay. Um, all right, if you had to eat the same meal for dinner every night for the rest of your life, what would it be? That's interesting. I, when I'm gonna go for a long ride, I always want spaghetti or pasta. You know what I'm saying? I just, because I know that's going to help me. Carb load. Just load up. 
So that's one of the things that I, yeah, my wife gets tired of doing that for me. But uh, pasta. Yeah, yeah. I just ate a lot of pasta because I like to, you know, have a little fuel. So I like it. I like your style. <laughs> I like your style. Okay. Uh, and then the last question is the question I ask all my guests. And that is, uh, David, what does it mean to you to run a business with purpose? Or, you know, I know you're even in retirement is to retire with purpose. What is it? What does it mean to you? Well, so it was, it was really great my involvement with uh, performance because I knew how good the bike was for the planet and good for the individual. So I was really blessed. It's funny, my uh, my first job, uh, really meaningful job out of out of school was uh, I worked for a pantyhose corporation, which wasn't nearly... <laughs> Haynes? Was it, did you work for Haynes? No, it was Kaiser Roth. They had oh. the no-nonsense pantyhose. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I moved from pantyhose to bikes and that was a good move. And I, that was actually a part of my decision-making process because I wanted to work for a business that was good for people and good for the planet. And yeah. that, that was the great thing about working at performance, you know. I mean, what's better than the bike, right? Yeah. For 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 that person's health, and for and for the planet. So that was great. Yeah, that was a, that was a blessing for me to be able to do that. I was there for twenty seven years. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, David, I um, am so grateful for your time. I'm grateful for your uh, your openness and your honesty. And I know that your story is going to really have an impact on people. Well, thank you so much for having me, Molly. It was a pleasure. I hope you were encouraged and inspired by David's story today. I loved hearing his raw honesty and it was just such a breath of fresh air to have this conversation. I would love to know what you loved about this episode or if there was something that you learned, would you please let me know on social media? You can find me at still being Molly or at business with purpose podcast, wherever you get your social medias, would you head on over to whatever podcast app you subscribe to and would you click the follow or subscribe button which helps to make sure that you never miss a new episode of the show be sure to tune in next week where my guests yes that is plural are jessica honiger and liz bohannon of noonday collection and I loved having Liz and Jess on because they are dear friends and they've both been on the show before and we just had the best conversation all about collaboration over competition and why Seiko Designs and Noonday Collection merged this summer, which was a really big deal in the fair trade ethical fashion world. So be sure to tune into that episode next week. Thank you so much to the team at Third Wheel Media for producing this show. And as always, go do something good with purpose on purpose.